This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 R FM in Melbourne. The interview you're about to hear is with American historian Professor Deborah Lipstadt. Deborah joined me in the studio to talk about Holocaust denial, defending historical truth, and the threat of anti-Semitism today. Deborah's new book is called Anti-Semitism Here and Now. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. And I'm delighted now to have with me in the studio Professor Deborah Lipstadt. And she is um, the Dorot Professor of Modern Jewish History and Holocaust Studies at Emory University in America. And she's here in Melbourne for a number of events Um Two at the Melbourne Writers' Festival and one is tonight. Uh, Deborah is delivering the John Button oration in the face of hatred. And Deborah has also written a number of books, including uh, her latest book, Anti-Semitism, Here and Now. And she's written other books around uh, the Eichmann trial, denying the Holocaust, um, and also looking at America's uh, relationship to the Holocaust uh, more recently. So I'm very pleased now to have have Deborah with me and welcome. Thank you, Amy. It's a pleasure being here. It's so fantastic to have the opportunity to pick your brain, uh, which is immense. (laughs) And it's great to see the kind of topics that have been so diverse, I guess, in your scholarly career as a historian. Well, I've been very lucky and able to choose my topics. But what's interesting and sort of amusing almost is that one of the topics, Holocaust denial, that has become such a major uh, part of my work and my life, uh, really started as a diversion. Uh, Two senior historians said, do you know about this Holocaust denial? I I laughed. I said, oh, it's crazy. No one would believe it. Mm. And they took it seriously, and I respected them. So I said, I'll spend a couple of years writing, looking at it, you know, two, three years, and then I'll move on back to other things. And, of course, the book precipitated a lawsuit brought against me by David Irving and um, then a long, drawn-out legal battle, et cetera. So, uh, but I've been lucky uh, in, the, in terms of the academic world being able to research what interests me. Yeah. And, I mean, let's give, you, give the listeners some background in su- such an important period of um, history, which is now um, – even a movie called Denial, which I just recently saw. And uh, for people listening, it's on SBS On Demand, so they can watch it after this interview or at their leisure. Um, But it was really fascinating to see the behind the scenes of what happened in that legal trial and the fact that, as you've said in um, the book that you wrote about it, there's such a difference between the American legal system and the British legal system Mm. and the burden of um, proof, I guess, is on you, the defendant. That's right. That's entirely correct. Uh, In America, if I I say you libeled me, uh, I have to prove that you libeled me. In Britain, and I assume it's similar here in Australia, um, if I say you libeled me, you as the author of the words, as the speaker of the words, in cases of slander, have to prove the truth of what you said. So when David Irving sued me for libel for calling him a Holocaust denier, which I always thought he was very proud of being, um, he waited till the book or Uh, came out in England and sued me in the British courts. Therefore, uh, because he knew clearly that if I didn't fight, 
which a lot of people told me not to fight. Colleagues, senior historians said, oh, don't waste your time. Everybody knows he's a liar. Everybody knows he makes things up. Mm. He would have won by default. If he had won by default, he could then say, my, David Irving's, uh, I'm not a Holocaust denier. The court found Deborah Lipstadt libeled me. Therefore, my version of the Holocaust is a genuine version. And that version is uh, there was no plan to kill the Jews. Hitler was the best friend the Jews had in Germany. There were no gas chambers. The Jews have made this all up, et cetera, et cetera. So, Mm. uh, I mean, in in his judgment, the judge found David Irving to be not just a a denier and a falsifier of history, but a neo-Nazi polemicist and a racist so yeah it was pretty good outcome it and a very important outcome given that really the veracity of the holocaust was being questioned and put on trial well what we did is we followed his footnotes back to the sources uh, and we had, in fact, a guest who was on your show a few months ago, Christopher Browning, was one of our witnesses, Richard Evans, Robert Jan von Pelt. And what they did, each in the areas of specialization, followed David Irving's comments and claims back to the sources. So he would say, I have a document which proves X, Y, Z. They'd go and find that original document, look at it. And in virtually all the cases they examined it, they would find a change, a falsification of the record to change in a date, putting someone at a meeting who wasn't there. Uh, so what we did is, and this, may, this is a distinction with a difference, we didn't really mm-hmm. prove what happened, but we proved that when the deniers claim it wasn't a Holocaust and it wasn't a genocide and the Jews have made it up, that they have no evidence, they have no proof, they have no narrative. What they have is a large voice and a lot of hate and in essence, Holocaust denial, we also demonstrated to the court, is a form of anti-Semitism that is very close to racism. Yeah. It's a really dangerous form of um, discrimination that you highlight in this new book. And um, I want to focus on the Holocaust denial element um, for a little bit longer, and then we'll head into anti-Semitism here and now. Um What was shocking for me when I was doing my research for this interview was looking up David Irving and his comments, but also looking at uh, other historians early on in um, Irving's career, even in the 1990s, who were um, thinking that although there were some flaws in his books and, you know, some of the things he said were, you know, pushing the truth or maybe he didn't say things explicitly enough. But a lot of people in his own field uh, gave him a certain level of respect and... Leeway. Yeah, and put him up on a pedestal in some regards because of his knowledge of the German language and his, I guess, commitment to the research in this field. Right. Uh, what they, what they engaged in what I call the yes, but syndrome. Yes, we know there was a Holocaust, but maybe there's something to what he's saying. Yes, there was a Holocaust, but maybe it wasn't six million. Yes, there was a Holocaust. Maybe there wasn't a gas chamber or something like that. And they just took him on faith, mm. uh, even though they, he had been shown before to have lied and made things up or have, have not been exactly explicit about the truth. Um, and uh, they, they gave him a great deal of leeway. 
uh, again, because he had uh, he has tremendous knowledge of German, the German language, and he seemed to have documents that others didn't have, some of which we now may have been false and some of which were given to him by former Nazis and things like that. Mm. Um, so that's why I called him in my book, the book that I wrote, which precipitated the lawsuit, The Most Dangerous of Deniers, because he didn't come across as a right-wing crazy. He didn't come across as some extremist sitting in a pub, you know, spouting, I love Hitler and mm. and hey, let's drink to Hitler and there was no Holocaust. But he came across as a, a respectable figure. And part of what I write, I know we're going to talk about the book in a minute, yeah. but, but the contemporary phenomenon that we're seeing, particularly on the right, um, but not just on the right, but certainly the way it presents on the right, if you look at the video of the marchers in Charlottesville, if your listeners just put in Charlottesville, August, what was it, uh, I think 17, August 16, um, uh, and... Uh, 17. And um, they're marching through the town with the tiki torches, chanting Jews will not replace us and blood and soil, which was a Nazi slogan, Jews are not of our blood or of the soil, Mm. of our soil. Um, Look at what they're wearing. They look like they came out of not exactly Brooks Brothers, but TJ Maxx, you know, uh, and they're all dressed in nice shirts and slacks and their faces are, are riveted with hate. Yeah. Um, but but they were told not to wear you know white power t shirts, not to white wear anti semitic shirts. They were to present themselves as respectable figures. That's exactly what deny what the the David Irving cohort of deniers did. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to be called deniers. They want to be called revisionists. We're just revising mistakes in history. We're just neutral observers. But when you scratch a millimeter beneath the surface, they're not neutral. They're making up. They're lying. They're uh, engaging in anti-Semitism and often in racism as well. Mm. Um, It reminds me of a quote from Christopher Hitchens. Um, He made this in the mid-1990s, I believe. He said, he's not just a fascist historian, he's also a very important historian of fascism. That's right. That's right. No, but Christopher uh, Hitchens, uh, late Christopher Hitchens, was, you know, sort of intrigued by who is this guy. Mm. And then he spent time with him and was just appalled. Yeah. Just appalled. And and that kind of transition between – and also there was a transition in Irving's work from initially um, accepting that the Holocaust happened at least implicitly mm-hmm. in his first book right. and then revising that And then in re- eliminating book. it. When, he, when his star began to go down, when historians began to say, wait, this man is, is pushing the boundaries of truth, not mm-hmm. opinion, but truth and fact um, – he suddenly reinvented himself or came out as whatever the term would be as a denier, showed up at a trial to be an expert witness in Canada of a, a Holocaust denier, a, a, a really quite re- revolting, now no longer with us man. Um, and he was given a piece of paper and he took one look at it, a, a summary of a study, and he said, oh, I don't believe now that there were gas chambers. I mean, just overnight, you know. And it became where he would say whatever was outrageous. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there were people who were willing to believe him. And then when he sued me after my book came out, because I called him the most dangerous of deniers, a Holocaust denier, my guess is, because others had written even worse about him, many people had written worse about him, that he thought I was, in British terms, from the other side of the pond. I was a woman. 
uh, I wouldn't fight back. It was too far. It was too complicated. I would just say, okay, I'll pay you. I'll settle. He offered mm. to settle with me for 500 pounds right before the trial to a charity of his choice. That was, again, a, a no-starter. Um, but uh, I knew that if if I let him if – I, if I didn't fight and he won, even though I would say to people, you know he's a liar, and they would say, of course, he would gain so much mileage. And, mm. and damage would be done – on a intellectual level to history, real damage to history, and on a personal level to survivors, children of survivors, people who care about the truth. Yeah, it does have real implications today in the way that we talk about facts, what is agreed upon, and then what historians might differ in terms of the interpretation. Right. Well, it's not just historians. Look, think about, and Mm. I know we don't want to get into this because we could spend the whole time, the (laughs) anti-vax movement which is based on no facts. It's based on a study which was published by Lancet based on, I think, 12 cases that Lancet then withdrew that is full of mistakes and egregious misstatements of fact and changes and all sorts of things where the doctors whose cases are supposedly being cited when they're shown the results say, that's not how my case went down. Uh, But there's still people who adhere to it and causing great damage, causing great uh, harm to children who who have been vaccinated, who have not yet been vaccinated, to people who are on chemotherapy, who who are susceptible, and just to the population in general. We have a measles epidemic in many parts of the world. Exactly. That's so true. It's become a major issue in New Zealand recently. But it's the same kind of thing. It's uh, Mm. lying about the facts but dressing them up in a scientific uh, facade – you know, sheep in wolf's clothing, a wolf in sheep's clothing, rather. Mm. Uh, and so then people say, oh, well, he looks reasonable. He must, but it's not. Climate change, the same thing. Exactly. Um, before we well, get into anti Semitism, one last thing around the word Holocaust and mm-hmm. I guess the definition. Mm-hmm. Um, there was obviously a lot that came out of uh, the Nuremberg trials and the UN um, and, and the definition of genocide, but genocide um, is still different from what a lot of people consider to be the Holocaust. Right. Genocide, the Holocaust is a subset of mm. genocide in general. Uh, the word genocide created by Raphael Lemkin, uh, a Jew. Jewish, a, a Jew from um, Poland, an area of Eastern Europe that was often in Poland. Um, and he was really talking in the main when he first began to write about it, but the Armenian genocide by the Turks, something which has not been recognized and not been acknowledged by the Turks and is a source of great pain, rightfully so, to the Armenian community. Mm. Um, but the Holocaust has certain unique elements. It has similar elements to genocide, and as every event has unique elements. And the uniqueness of the Holocaust is that, A, it was state-sponsored, and as was, of course, the Armenian genocide and other genocides, but it was an attempt not just to destroy the Jews living in Germany, not just to d- destroy the Jews whom you had conquered, but to go from one end of Europe to the other. In fact, in their plans and their decisions, how to how to carry this out from the Vansay conference from January forty two, um, they they include Jews in England, Jews in Switzerland, Ireland, uh, so that this was to make Europe at least Europe, and then mm. they go off Europe to Libya and other Rhodes, Malta, um, to make 
Europe Judenrein from one end to the other. And so that most genocides, you know, the, the, the Turks who were horrific, just this, outrageous in their treatment of the Armenians, but they were interested in the Armenians in a certain area, not an Armenian living in Berlin or mm. Paris or something like that. And it was state-sponsored. It wasn't a group coming up from behind or the side or whatever. The entire state apparatus was involved. Yeah, it was systematic and industrialized. That's right. Industri- it was industrialized killing. Mm. How, to use every aspect, I was just in uh, Auschwitz this summer. It was I've been there many times on research and et cetera. Um, and I was showing someone, walking with someone through the museum, and I said, look, blankets made out of hair. Let's save the spectacles. Let's repurpose the uh, suitcases. It was it was a major, in addition to being a major killing operation, it was a major industrial operation designed to make uh, the SS and, by extension, the Nazi regime in Germany rich. Mm, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so many, even in the Einsatzgruppen, you know, would take the possessions of the Jewish people. Oh, absolutely. You mm. have their pictures. In fact, in Paris, uh, there's some famous pictures of warehouses where you see SS officers walking through the warehouses and their dishes and this furniture. This is all stuff that's been uh, confiscated from Jews. And they were invited to go in and maybe pay for it, buy it at bargain prices. But this was, uh, there was a, there was a deep economic element, but also a strong ideological element of hatred, of a hatred of Jews, the, the demonization of Jews in a way that um, was unheard of. And again, contrasting, not saying one, uh, you know, my pain, it's not comparative pain, but in the Armenian genocide, again, something which should be talked about much more, mm-hmm. um, if a Turkish family took a, a Muslim baby, I'm, I'm sorry, but a Turkish Muslim took a Christian baby, a Christian Armenian Christian baby. They would raise it as a Muslim, and that was fine. Not in the Holocaust, because a drop of Jewish blood, as if there is such a thing, mm. um, meant that that person had to be destroyed. Yeah, exactly. That's a great point. Um, Christopher Browning, who you mentioned there, um, when he came in, was talking about anti-Semitism historically and suggested that it was a feature of Europe essentially from medieval times and was deeply ingrained in the whole of Europe. It was... uh it starts in ancient times with, uh, based on the New Testament story of the crucifixion of Jesus, that didn't have to happen from there. But by the Middle Ages, even the early Middle Ages, as Christianity is gaining a foothold in Europe, it, one of the things it needs is an enemy. One of the things it needs to do is to differentiate itself from its mother religion. The uh, ideology was supersessionism. We have, uh, we as Christians have superseded Judaism. So the Jew is, is not only refusing to see the light, of Christianity, but is blind and is 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 eaten and wants to hurt Christians. Mm. So the Jew becomes not just someone to be disliked, as might be the case with a you know in a racist, but the Jew becomes the devil. The Jew becomes the demon. The Jew becomes the ultimate threat. And that is one of the things that continues. And in the book, in, in anti-Semitism here and now, I show that that it migrates way out of the church. It migrates to Karl Marx, who hated all and uh, despised all religion. It migrates to Nazis. It migrates to pseudoscience. So it has legs, and it, it remains with us. Exactly. Strongly. Yeah, it doesn't go away. It doesn't go away. I don't, in fact, uh, while I think there are certain things we can uh, do, uh, do to address uh, prejudice in general, anti-Semitism, in particular, I don't think we can cure it. 
I think it's there. It's, I, I compare it to a herpes virus that lies dormant in your body and is exposed at times of stress or when there is a hospitable atmosphere. You have an infection, you have something, and it can find a place to embed itself. Mm. Um, and I think that's what we see in anti-Semitism. That, again, I'm not saying, and I argue this in the book, and uh, you know, uh, that there's nothing we can do. And I wrote the book. I've been very gratified by the reception it's received in general. And since I've been here in Australia, I was in the Antidote Festival at the Opera House, Sydney Opera House last week. And the response and the interest from a broad range of people, it's not just I'm speaking to the victims of the Jewish community. It's way beyond that. Um, and that people under, are beginning to take it seriously. You know, and the Jew presents, again, as I, as I argue in the book, and you know from, from having read the book that it's a mm. s- series of letters. I wrote it to be accessible. I want the person who is saying, what is this? Where did it come from? What's going on here? To be able to pick it up and read it and, and, and find answers. Um, but it's, it's a threat to democracy, the point of, of anti-Semitism is not just that it harms the Jew and makes I – mean, last night I heard stories of a, a, a 16-year-old girl in Melbourne who goes to a regular school, friendly with her friends, and she was sitting having lunch, and uh, some of the guys walked by and he threw a $5 bill down. And she said, what's and – oh, on the floor. And someone said, aren't you going to pick that up? And she said, no, it's not my money. You dropped it. Um, and they said, well, you're a Jew. You know, implying Jews are are always interested in money, they're cheap, Uh, that a a young boy was tormented by friends on the bus, Uh, that that there are Jews who are uncomfortable about openly showing their Jewish identity. Now, there are groups that suffer much more direct in that way, but it's not a good thing for society if a group within that society feels they have to go underground. They have to Mm. be hidden. They have to be... I mean, we've seen that with the LGBTQ revolution of the past many years. Um, It's not healthy for the group, but it's not healthy for the society either. And I think in terms of anti-Semitism, there's another element. Anti-Semitism is a conspiracy theory. the, The racist punches down and says, if those quotes around those people come into quotes around our schools they'll bring the schools down they'll bring down, there goes the neighborhood the value etc the anti-semite who's one and the same with the racist in in, in 99.999 percent of the cases looks at the jew and says that jew is 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 causing us danger that jew is 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 more powerful more cunning they control things so it's not just that you dislike them but they become the ultimate evil and they have to be stopped. So the race, the anti-Semite punches up, the racist punches down. Mm. And I'm glad you brought up that conspiratorial element because it is quite a unique feature around anti-Semitism. And this um, idea or the stereotypes that exist currently around the Jews, in inverted commas, which are around power, money, right. um, controlling the financial system, um, you know, having, as you say, that like overly 
strong focus or um, identity of being a business person who's interested in making deals and perhaps um, not being honest. Not being quite honest, not being right, exactly. Those are the traditional anti-Semitic stereotypes and they're very much there. Uh, And that conspiracy element, you know, they control. They Now, there are Jews who are rich and there are Jews who are powerful and there are Jews who are not rich and not powerful, um, just like any other group. But the minute about you talk about the Jews, uh, then you're 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 on that slope in, in that anti-Semitic slope, as is with the case with racism and other isms. Mm. Absolutely, but the conspiracy theory um, is particularly dangerous to any democracy because if I believe that there is a group, <coughs> excuse me, in this case Jews, who control the judges, control the banks, control the media, whatever it might be, I lose faith in the democratic institutions in my society. Once you begin to lose faith in those democratic institutions, democracy is at risk. And we see those attacks, we see them on on the left, we see more uh, of a refusal to take it seriously because the Jew doesn't present as other victims of prejudice. The Jew presents differently than an African-American, or a black person, a Hispanic, a, a person of color, um, a Muslim um, and but but you have to take it seriously, and uh, it's what I'm sad about as a person who sees herself certainly as center left and and on that side, is that I see so many people on the progressive left. Not everyone, but some. Certainly it's exemplified by the place people around the leader of the British Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, who refuse to take it seriously. Because they look at Jews and they say, oh, you're not victims. Their default position is not to take it seriously. If any other group, minority group, either ethnic, religious, sexual preference, whatever it might be, came to them and said, we are the victims of prejudice, Mm. their default position wouldn't be to dismiss. Their default position is, we don't take it seriously. You're making it up. You're you're doing it for your own advancement. And how could me, a committed liberal, be a purveyor of prejudice? But it is happening. Indeed. And in this book, I think you provide something that's particularly helpful, which is around identifying anti-Semitism mm-hmm. and um, I guess the varying types right. of anti-Semites and anti-Semitism anti-Semitic behavior and attitudes. We're all familiar with the extremists. The person Mm. in Pittsburgh, we don't have to shot at the synagogue or at San Diego or other, or in Europe in so many places. We don't have to be convinced that they're anti-Semites. But you have the dinner party anti-Semite, the person who says, oh, uh, you know, we just hired a new associate in our law firm or a new person. Um, He's a Jew, but he's very honest. Or what happened to me? I have not had that much personal experience. Of course, I had the six years of the Irving lawsuit, which I lived with anti-Semitic attacks and anti-Semitic rhetoric day day in, day out. But... um, the one of the things that happened to me is uh, when I was uh, I had my first uh, teaching position at the University of Washington in Seattle, and uh, towards the end, it went very well. Classes were crowded; the whole range of students taking my classes, etc. Towards the end of my year, a colleague took me out for a coffee, and he said, "Deborah, last year when this job was being decided upon and defined, and uh, and we were doing the search and, and 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 interviewing candidates, I was on leave, and it was before you know you kept up with everything via email." He said, so when I came back, I discovered we had hired someone in modern Jewish history. It was the first time someone in the university had Jewish in their title. And he said, and then I heard you were a woman, a New Yorker. And he paused and said, and a Jew. 
I was really worried. And I'm sitting there drinking my coffee thinking, where is this conversation going? <laughs> then he said, but Deborah, you're the best thing to happen to this department. And I was a young grad. I was young, you know, I had just finished graduate school. Mm. I was, to my enduring shame, I didn't say anything. But today I would have said, well, thank you for what you think is a compliment. But that is one of the most anti-Semitic, you know, I like you because, you know, despite all those things, it's like saying some of my best friends are Jews, some of my best friends are gays. When people start boasting, some of my best friends are white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Then I'll say, <laughs> that's you know, they never boast about that, but about Jews, about gays, about blacks. There's something I'm, 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 I know the good ones. Or look at me, I'm so terrific. I'm friends with you know with them. Yeah. Uh, there's it's it's what a, a American journalist has said: uh, a philo semite, someone who boasts about that, is an anti-semite who likes Jews. You say that you're an equal opportunity critic, which is great. And you highlight in this book the fact that there's anti-Semitic views on the left and the right and they present themselves in different ways. But there's also people who enable anti-Semitism to become accepted or at least unchallenged in public debates, various issues arising. Um, And A lot of uh, perhaps people on the left or progressive politics might think about the state of Israel and often um, can head into a slippery slope of anti-Semitism or at least enabling anti-Semitism when they engage on the issue of Israel and Palestine. Israel, and we could spend a whole hour, which I know we don't have, Mm. uh, talking about that topic. So let me me sort of lay out certain things. Criticism of Israeli policies is not anti-Semitism, just like criticism of Australian policy is not anti-Australianism or whatever. It's when a person has a myopic view that only one side is responsible for everything that happened. Uh, If only the Israelis would do X, Y, Z. Or this is the only human rights problem in the world. I'm not saying you have to be concerned about all human rights problems to earn Mm. your bona fides. But when you have this myopic view, um, when you say, oh, Israel was, as one person uh, who's very anti-Israel said to me recently, Israel was founded in sin, so it doesn't have a right to exist. So what do you mean? Well, Arabs were chased out. Now, there were some Arabs who were chased that, but many left of their own volition expecting they would come back. And he said, so it doesn't have a right to exist. I said, let's talk about other countries that have sins in their founding history. We'll start with the United States and slavery and Native Americans. We'll go to Canada and talk about First Nation. Then we'll go across the sea to Australia and the treatment of your indigenous people, the the Aborigines who were here, Mm. to New Zealand, to Maoris. it's 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 that singular focus that you've got to wonder what is going on here and ignoring uh, wrongs that exist. You know the the um, outlawing of LGBTQ activities in the, in the Palestinian Authority areas or the overt anti-Semitism in some of their textbooks. It doesn't make the other right. I'm not saying oh because they do it, two wrongs make it okay. Mm. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is the people who care about those things should be caring about them on both sides. You can't fight one ism without fighting another ism. You know, you can't say I'm only going to fight that ism or I'm going to engage in a prejudicial attitude to try to achieve a human rights objective. Something's wrong. Mm. Um, there's so much more nuance to this than I think is often captured when people get emotive That's and right. invested in these political debates. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Nuance, nuance and listening and understanding the history. And I tried to do that in the book uh, to really make it accessible to people. I wasn't writing for my colleagues. I mm. wasn't writing for my specialists. So it is an academic book, 30 pages of footnotes, but they're in the back. Yeah. You can read the book without ever looking at a footnote. You can. And it's called Anti-Semitism Here and Now. And you are delivering an oration tonight, the John Button oration at Correct. State Library of Victoria. So That's very, can... It's very exciting. It's yeah. very exciting. I've, I've had a, an unbelievable trip. I'm leaving tomorrow, but I hope to be back soon. So That would be great. It's Thank a you. whirlwind trip, isn't it? Yeah. Um, that's on tonight at 6.30 if anyone's interested, and I'll give you more details after this. Uh, thank you so much, Deborah, for thank making you, Amy. a trip Thank you, Amy. Thank you for having me. It's been a great pleasure. And, and mine. Thanks. Uh, I've been speaking with Professor Deborah Lipstadt, who is the author of a new book, Anti-Semitism, Here and Now, and as I said, is delivering the John Button oration tonight. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.